Lunapads believes that reusable menstrual products can offer a radical and transformative way to practice self-care and support body positivity. Their collection of modern cloth pads and leak-free undies are comfortable, sustainable, and effective. So you can stop getting ripped off every month by corporations trashing our planet. Get ready for a different kind of period experience and save 20% on your order at lunapads.com with the code PODSQUAD. That's P-O-D-SQUAD at lunapads.com. Bitch Media is an independent nonprofit feminist media organization. Help make propaganda possible. Join hundreds of fellow listeners and become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine in print and digital, a snazzy sticker, and Listen Bitch, a brand new monthly roundup of all our podcast shows and music reviews straight to your inbox. Learn more at bitchmedia.org pollinators. This is Popaganda, the feminist response to pop culture podcast. I'm Sarah Merck. It's May Day, and I'm in Berlin. The city shuts down for International Workers' Day. People from all over the world are here in Berlin, joining the protest and the giant street party. On all sides of me, I hear voices in German, in English, in Spanish, Arabic, Italian, and Turkish, shouting about exploitation and violence and raising beers for a toast. As the protest takes off down a huge street, an anti-capitalist chant starts up. In the middle of this Monday afternoon, the streets of Kreuzberg, a neighborhood in the center of Berlin that's known for being even more lefty and political than the rest of the city, are so full of people that no cars are allowed in the area. For today, the city is a full-blown anti-capitalist celebration and protest. And then, Tuesday, it's back to work. I have complicated feelings about my role in the workforce. I'm a little cog in a machine that I think is churning out more bad than good. It's like one protester said in the May Day March, you are so much more than your productivity. But also, you're paid by the hour and you need to get this pile of work done and your deadline is coming up, so you better get productive. Both of these realities are true. For anti-capitalist feminists like myself, what is our relationship to money? How do we square our feelings about hating the economic system we live in, but also needing to earn a living and maybe save some money and maybe even one day buy a house? That's our question for today's show. This is the first of two episodes we're doing about money and propaganda this year. The second, which will come out this summer, will focus more on poverty and capitalism. So stay tuned for that. I called up some smart feminist activist folks to talk about money feelings. These are huge questions around how to live in the world. How do I, how do we participate in our economy in the best, most ethical way? There's no answer to those questions. You know, there's never, there's never a having arrived, a landing point where you're suddenly pure and in right relation to like capitalism. You know, there is no justice in capitalism. That's the whole thing. Ah, crap. That wisdom comes from Rowan Boucher. Oh, well, hi. Um, My name's Rowan Boucher. I live in Carborough, North Carolina. And I mean, honestly, my identity right now is so consumed by being a parent of two toddlers. But I also am a social justice educator and consultant. I work with a worker-owned co-op called AORDA, which stands for Anti-Oppression Resource and Training Alliance. And I'm an artist. In 2008, Rowan was thinking a lot about money and identity and activism and co-founded this group called Enough with lawyer and transgender activist Dean Spade. It wasn't really a group. Um, it was a website. It still is a website, um, but it uh, it looks terrible now because something happened to the WordPress platform that we were on. 
Um, but all of the writing still exists online. Oh, yeah. Not a group. An online journal that publishes essays about the topic that people feel really awkward about discussing. Money. My Myself and Dean Spade, who is the brilliant human being that uh, I created enough with, we wanted to talk about money and how we use it in our lives and in our movements. And, and we wanted to have that conversation with, with people that had anti-capitalist politics because capitalism isn't just an economic system, right? It's cultural. It gets into our heads and hearts and it, it teaches us all these things like scarcity and individualism. It has all these myths and messages that, that affect us even when we know they aren't true. I asked Roan, what are some of the ways that capitalism affects the way we see the world? that take us some time to recognize? Like, what are some of the invisible impacts of capitalism on our brains? Yeah, I mean, I think that individualism is a huge part of it. Um, You know, it teaches us to, like, look out for ourselves and not do things like talk about, like, how much money do you make? How much money do you need? Are you in debt? Are you struggling? Like, can I help you? And, you know, I think that happens a lot more in, like, poor and low-income communities um, than it does in middle class and wealthy communities for, you know, obvious reasons. But one of the things that, you know, Dean and I were thinking about when we started Enough was that it teaches us to not have these conversations. Partly, you know, sometimes it's coming from shame, whether that's shame about being in poverty or shame about having wealth. And sometimes it's coming from just this really intense, like, social conditioning to to not talk about these things it's those pervasive myths of capitalism where like even though you know the meritocracy is fake and and people don't get to pull themselves up by their bootstraps it still affects people like psychically on so many levels so speaking of capitalism roan grew up as someone who benefited a lot from that system He's really frank about that. So I grew up a rich kid, um, you know, the kind of rich that other rich people would call upper middle class, but only because being rich skews your perspective about those things. You know, I went to private school for middle school and high school. I went to summer camp. Um, My dad started making a lot of money around the time that I was born through a job in the software industry that he came into through, you know, like one part luck, two parts hard work, and like a hundred parts privilege and nepotism. When Roan was in his 20s, he decided to do something pretty radical for a young person with money, to give it away, to fund social justice work. I mean, to me, it it felt like a very simple choice. Um, I learned that I had a trust fund when I was about 18, um, and I didn't want it, which, you know, in itself is a function of of having grown up with wealth and class privilege, right? Um, I didn't have a feeling of scarcity. I wasn't like, oh, thank God I have that money that I can use for my future. And I didn't get access to it until I was 25. Um, And by then I had had a lot of time to think about it. Um, And I had gotten involved in resource generation. And I, I really came to understand that philanthropy is like this whole thing. I mean, I, there's a thing called social justice philanthropy or social change philanthropy, which is like kind of real and kind of not real. Um, I knew I wanted to give away at least half of it. It was like $400,000 in total. And I had a lot of conversations with my dad about it where I was like, don't freak out. I'm giving this away. And he was like, you don't know what you're doing, but that's your choice. You know, and it was a weird experience. It was a really weird experience. And it was uncomfortable for me just because like, you know, the way that people treat donors who give, you know, a few thousand dollars is like that, that felt uncomfortable to me. You know, I wanted to be seen as like a fellow organizer and a fellow person, like a peer in the movement. Um, and so, but, but that, but I also was very conscious of the fact that like, that was just my shit that I had to deal with. Um, and I tried to be really communicative and yeah. And it was, it never felt like you know, I think people want to talk about like giving away that much money because it seems like a big deal. But for me, like I didn't, it did never felt like my money. Um, it felt like I was very clear that it was not fair for me to have that. Um, and it didn't feel like a sacrifice in any way to, to give it away because of, you know, I can't like give away my safety net. You know, you can't give away the things that come from having class privilege 
even as you can give away money, which is important. But I knew that I was never going to be, I was not likely to be in a position of being like destitute. You know, I think there's this like, I was interviewed once for the New York Times during this time um, for some article in like the, you know, life and style section about like these rich kids that are just giving away all of their money. And it ended up being really like, almost like a parody of itself, you know, because there was all of this like panic about like these rich kids are just going to end up like poor and destitute and what are they thinking? And they're just young and naive. And, and I just knew that that wasn't me, like that I wasn't at any significant risk of that just because of my class position um, and my background. So yeah, it was, it was an easy choice to make. Roan started working with a group called Resource Generation, which organizes young people with wealth to work toward transforming our society, to have a more equitable distribution of wealth, land, and power. I I had all of these people in my community coming to me to talk about, you know, their secret trust funds. Um, And it was really frustrating um, on some level because I felt like I wish we could just talk about this, like, collectively. You know, there's there's this lie in, in lefty communities that rich people are not among us. And, you know, it does, it does so much damage because first, you know, you have people lying and, and obfuscating and, um, you know, just hiding the fact that they have money, um, because they're ashamed and, you know, when instead they could be funding movements and giving money to other people in their communities who need it. You know, when we started enough, like Dean was coming from from a really different place. He grew up poor and was suddenly gaining access to to more money through his job. Um, I remember he wrote this post called "The Dirty Details of My New Salary," where he talked about you know suddenly getting paid like three or four times what he'd ever made before, and it was just this beautifully honest and thoughtful piece of writing about the complexities of that, you know, just everything from like class trauma and survivor's guilt to, to all of the many, many ethical contradictions of ever doing anything with money, you know, like what does it mean to, to pay off debt when that means sending money to evil corporations? What does it mean to save for retirement? You know, when there are people close to us in poverty now, plus, you know, like investments are evil. What does it mean to like give to people close to us versus people in greater need who who we don't know personally what does it mean to buy a house when all land is stolen land you know and 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 that post was i think the post that got the most responses ever and we we found out that like a lot of people wanted to talk about those things but didn't always know how to and when i spent a lot of time talking to other like young lefty rich people about being rich everyone was grappling with those questions and everyone wanted to know like what is enough how much money is okay to have? How can I restore some balance of fairness where I'm okay? Um, And there's really no metric for determining that. I mean, obviously, if you have millions of dollars, you should really give that away. Nobody should have that much money. But when you're talking about like, how do I have money? How do I use money? How do I engage with those millions of contradictions of my ethics that functioning in capitalism forces me into? You know, those are the questions that everyone has to grapple with personally and, and be right with themselves about personally. Um, because what, what we're really talking about is, is generations upon generations of stolen land and labor and resources and lives and, you know, a, a system that is actively murderous and exploitative and, and inhumane. And, you know, that's the real shit that people with wealth and all white people have to deal with and do our work around. And I think there are a lot of situations where, you know, that kind of hyper personal individual focus on like, how can I be right and pure and good can, can become a distraction, like a way to avoid the deeper issues. Um, it's a very individualist focus because, you know, everyone should have housing and healthcare and food and education and reproductive justice and, you know, all of those basic rights that our society currently reserves for wealthy people. I hate the capitalist system And I'll tell you the reason why It has caused me so much 
suffering and my dearest friends to die. Well, I know. Thanks, Roan, for laying down some real talk about capitalism. You can read the archives of Enough at their, yes, rather old school website at enoughenough.org. Next up, writer Ashley C. Ford on what money feelings stick with you from growing up poor. My husband has TB brought on by hard work and low wages and never. You're listening to Popaganda, the Feminism and Pop Culture podcast. Today, we're talking about money feelings. Your relationship to money as a kid affects the way you relate to the economy for your whole life. Even if you're making enough money to feel relatively stable, there can often be a lurking fear of having it all fall away. I talked this over with Refinery29 senior features writer, Ashley C. Ford. Hi, my name is Ashley C. Ford. I am a writer, mostly, though I try to do other things as well. (laughs) Nothing as good yet, Um, but I like the writing, so that works out. And I'm a senior features writer at Refinery29. These days, Ashley lives in New York City. And in true New York fashion, as soon as we started talking for this interview a construction crew started jackhammering into the side of her building. Because they're on one of those, like, scaffolding things. Yeah, right up against the building. (laughs) I'm sorry. (laughs) It feels like in New York, somebody is always jackhammering something at the most inopportune time. But anyway, you'll hear that there's this kind of weird low rumbling noise in the background throughout our interview. I'm sorry about that. Instead of distracting you, I hope it helps transport you to, you know, the authentic glamour of life in the big city. So anyway, I asked Ashley to start off by talking with me a little bit about her relationship to money growing up. I asked her, what was your family's relationship to money? Well, my family's comments around money were always just that we didn't have enough. I definitely took a lot of responsibility for things that weren't my responsibility and that no one was making my responsibility, you know? Um, And one of those things was money in our household. And I didn't have a, you know, I was a kid, so, you know, I didn't have a job or anything like that. I wasn't bringing in any money, but I did see it as my job to be the least amount of expensive that my mom could hope for in a child. So I didn't ask for things that were expensive or that, or were things that like were meant to show off a certain amount of like wealth or class, I never wanted those things, even when we could afford them or even when they were available to me. I didn't want them, um, mostly because I never felt like we could afford them, whether my mom said we could or not. So two questions there, Ashley. You said your family didn't make it your responsibility. So how did you decide it was your responsibility? Like, where did that idea come from? And then what sorts of things do you remember deciding not to ask for as a kid? Um, well, to the first question, you know, my mom was upset a lot about money and she would talk a lot about how she didn't have enough and about how, you know, like be about the fact that she was on her own raising four kids and that, you know, like even though she never said y'all are costing me this or anything like that, like she never said things like that um, to us. She did you know, talk about our lack of money in a way that, and also I'm the oldest kid. And I don't know if you know, like if you're an oldest kid or if you know anything about oldest kids, but this is just kind of what we do. Like this is across the board for the most part, oldest kids just always sort of step up and decide that they can go without so that everybody else can have. It's just a thing that we do. And I especially have that sort of psychological leaning. Um, I've always been the kind of person who took on things that it, they weren't necessarily mine to take on. It sounds like you really grew up with the feeling of scarcity. Like, I can't do that. I can't do that. As an adult, do you still have that feeling of scarcity or has your mindset like changed in some big way? I th- Both. <laughs> like, I am in the process of becoming a person who is not stuck in a scarcity mindset. Like I'm becoming that kind of person. Part of that is in the past year, I've been financially stable for the first time in my life. 
for the first time in my life at 29 years old. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, I'm 30 now, but it started when I was 29. Um, I'm, I have enough money and I'm not rich. I'm not wealthy, but I have enough money. Like there, I'm at a place right now where most emergencies that could happen, I would be able to cover them for myself and not be incredibly strained because I covered them. Like that's where I am in my life right now. And that's a first. So I am trying to get out of the scarcity mindset, but it's really hard. It's really hard. I am a person who spent the first 29 years of her life in survival mode. And I don't know how to get out of that all the time. Even now that I have enough, I still don't know how to get out of survival mode. You know, earlier when you asked me about um, if I could remember particular instances of um, turning things down or not doing things because of the money, uh, absolutely. I was invited to enroll in private school as a very young kid who was considered gifted. And I was like, there's no way. Like in my mind, I was like, if I go to this private school, they don't have buses that come here. So my mom is going to have to drive me. She's going to have to figure out that. She's gonna to have to figure out extra gas money. When I get to this private school, there's gonna be activities, there's gonna be sports, there's gonna be band. And I know that those things are gonna be expensive. So no, I can't go to private school. Like I made that decision for myself. I'm not going to private school because it's going to be too expensive. And I can remember being a kid, you know, like, I mean, I grew up, where I grew up, I was surrounded by black folks, surrounded. My high school was about 90% black. Like that's how black the area was that I grew up. So you know how black women are, like our hair, the hair was done, it was laid, there was braids and, and waves and everything else. And I never got my hair done. I never got my hair done as a young person. And I would always tell my mom that it was because, you know, I just didn't want to. It didn't interest me. And it wasn't really that it didn't interest me. It was more so these girls would tell me how much it costs to get their hair done. And I would be like, no, <laughs> you know, like, I just know my mom can't afford that. Why would I even ask? So as an adult, now that you're um, financially stable, how does that feeling stick around? I get terrified about buying things for the apartment. I get terrified about are we saving enough in retirement? What does it even mean to save in retirement? Maybe I'm not doing it right. Like they're just all these like things that I suddenly have to worry about, like with more money now make me self-conscious about the fact that I've never had money. And it makes me self-conscious about the fact of things like, you know, my boyfriend's parents, if they both lost their jobs today or something, if there was a medical emergency, if one of them died, like if anything happened in that situation, his parents financially would be fine. We might have to like, you know, support them in some other way, but we will never have to financially support his parents. That is just not part of our reality. My parents are absolutely going to need help in their older age. Like there's no way around that. My mom has nothing. She has nothing. What you're describing is a real fear about spending any money at all. And in some ways that fear comes from like a good place, from a responsibility of about wanting to build a life where you're independent and can take care of yourself and your family. But then there's also that like lurking terror of the floor falling out from under you because there's no safety net. There's no safety net in your family, but also in the United States, there's no social safety net to pick up if you say, like if you get sick. I'm also very aware that, you know, anything could happen. I'm not the kind of person who has the privilege of living under the delusion that things could always be like this or that they always will be like this. Like, I am so aware of what it's like to have nothing, like nothing. I've been displaced, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I've never been homeless, like I've never had to sleep on the street. I've never not had a roof over my head, but I've definitely been in the position where if somebody did not let me live with them for free, I would have had nowhere to go. And that really sticks with you. That has to mark the way you forever think about money. I'm, I'm wondering how 
these days you now deal with that fear. Like in some ways, it's very useful. It makes you save and it makes you have to think ahead. On the other hand, it can be a terror that's that's hurting you, not helping you. Um, there is part of me that takes a lot of pride in my ability to go into survival mode and hustle. In winter of this past year, I found out the job I had, um, the company I was working for was going to be closing. And when I, and Kelly loves to tell this story because to him, it sounds like a soup. My boyfriend's name is Kelly, sorry. Um, but my boyfriend loves to tell this story because to him, it sounds like I have a superpower because we were in Mexico, but we went down to La Paz, Mexico um, with his family uh, for our holiday um, little like getaway situation. And while I was there, I, we were on a bus <laughs> to a different city. And while we were on the bus, I found out that my company was closing, that they were going to close. And within an hour, I had interviews at three different companies. Like wow. within an wow. hour, within an hour on my phone, emailing people, I had interviews at three different companies three. And Kelly loves to tell this story because for him, he's like, oh my God. He's like, he's just like, how did that even happen? How does anybody do that? And for me, it's like, I mean, yeah, I'm glad that I'm in a position that that was able to happen, that I was able to do that. But it was also like, I had to go back to this place that I hadn't had to go to for most of that year which was okay you now you got to hustle now you're back in survival mode because you need a job if this company is closing you need a job so you need to work whatever you got to work to get a job really fast and i did <laughs> you know i did there's also stuff that it's like i just you know like there are things that you also that come with that that you also just like can't get over I also have this part of me that always lives in this place of I don't have enough. I don't have enough to be safe. That That's trauma. That's financial trauma that I'm living in. Being in survival mode means you are always kind of living in the past and, you know, sort of trying to piece things together in the future. It's like walking down a very, very long staircase, but like, or running down a long staircase and you're having to build more stairs while you're running down and hoping that by the time you reach that last step, you've built another stair to put in front of it. That was writer Ashley C. Ford. She's now the senior features writer at Refinery21. You can follow her on Twitter, where she's very funny and smart all the time, at ismashfizzle. Coming up, writer Michelle T. on having a nervous breakdown in the Trader Joe's. Stay tuned. Just a quick message from our sponsor, LunaPads believes that reusable menstrual products can offer a radical and transformative way to practice self-care and support body positivity. Their collection of modern cloth pads and leak-free undies are comfortable, sustainable, and effective, so you can stop getting ripped off every month by corporations trashing our planet. Get ready for a different kind of period experience and save 20% on your order at lunapads.com with the code PODSQUAD. That's P-O-D squad for 20% off at lunapads.com. Michelle T's books have been a light in the dark for a lot of misfit teens who grew up poor. In her books, Passionate Mistakes, Valencia, and Rent Girl, she talks about growing up in a working class family and finding her own way on the streets of Boston and San Francisco as a queer woman in the early 90s. The books are full of vivid images of sleeping on gross mattresses in God knows whose apartment, of staying up all night drinking and constantly moving in search of cheap rent. But these days, in her 40s, Michelle's life and her relationship to money have both changed a lot. She's sober, 
She's got a stable partner, a baby, and a successful career as a writer. In her recent memoir, How to Grow Up, Michelle talks a lot about her changing relationship to the idea of money. She even has this money prayer. When I called her up, the first thing I asked Michelle was, could you recite the money prayer? I don't know if it's a prayer. I guess it's a prayer. Why not? Why not? Any any intentional thing, I suppose, can be a prayer. Um, I, I stole this prayer. It's not my prayer. I stole it from Inga Musio, who is another author who wrote the, the book Cunt, an um, autobiography of a blue-eyed devil. She was speaking at um, a reading series I was hosting, and somebody asked her. We had a really engaged Q&A afterwards, and money for writers came up, like how do writers support themselves? And she shared her money chant, which is, I'm a money magnet. Money comes to me. Money is sexually attracted to me. Money wants to be me. I think I tacked onto it. I love money. I am money. Um, And I did that because um, I didn't love money and I didn't feel like I was money. I felt like I was the opposite of money. I felt like I was a money repellent. Um, And that comes from you know, growing up poor working class uh, in a family that didn't like their jobs, didn't have jobs that were fulfilling to them. So work and the earning of money was sort of a curse that we were all um, enduring and struggling against. And, you know, money, people who had money in, in my family were very demonized, you know, the idea of them. We didn't know, actually know any people with money in real life, but you know, it was, there was a lot of like money goes to money and, you know, rich people are immoral and and terrible and stuff like that. So I grew up with that and I kept it. And, um, it's some, you know, and I kind of put like more of like a punk rock, um, aesthetic onto it and thought that it was my own and didn't really see how I was just kind of following, um, the culture of my family in a way. I'm from uh, Chelsea, Massachusetts. It's an immigrant-heavy, working-class, working-poor city in Massachusetts. My, my, my parents, you know, my father worked for the post office. Um, I don't remember what he did before that, but my mother helped him get that job when we were very young. And then my mother stayed at home with us until, she was, until I was around in, I think, like fourth or fifth grade. She went, my city has a free nursing school. It's connected to the VA hospital in the city, and um, it's a great place for poor women, especially poor women on the verge of leaving their husbands, which my mother was, to go and get a career. So she did that. She went through that school. She graduated. And in return for the free education, you have to work for the VA hospital for a certain period of time. So my mother has stayed in that field. She works. She does geriatric nursing, and, um, and that helped her get a career and make money to be able to leave my father. But she was still, you know, like a single mom after that. He kind of vanished with like a single income, raising the two of us. But yeah, you know, it was a very working class place. I never grew up thinking that a job was something that you pursued that you loved. You know, I wasn't raised to go to college and I actually found the process of trying to go to college without that familial support really, really difficult. Like I didn't even just applying for colleges was so financially overwhelming, you know, having to ask my mother. I remember asking my mother for $50 so that I could apply to Tulane because I really liked Anne Rice and I wanted to go to school in New Orleans. <laughs> and her just being like, you already asked me for $50 to apply to the School of Visual Arts in New York City. All of these places and all of these schools seemed so unreal that I know she just felt like I was taking her $50 and like throwing it into the abyss. And I was, you know, I didn't have the support to do that. I ended up going to a state school in Salem, Massachusetts, and I I did that on my own and I got some loans to do it. I worked for a year after high school to save money to do it. And then I just kind of couldn't keep it up. What was your relationship to money at this time? Were you, because you were saying you wanted to be a writer, you were like, screw it, you were a punk the system wasn't working for you, or you basically just like, fuck money, fuck the system. I'm just going to scrounge by on whatever I can. I mean, pretty much like I, all I knew was scrounging by on whatever I could. And I was never 
it, you know, it, I was never expected to accomplish more or gain more. And watching my family kind of struggle and hate their work, I just saw work and money as like a necessary evil that you needed. Um, so I, 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 my plan was looking at all of this was like, you just want to get some crappy job that you don't care about too much. You need cheap rent and then you can do your own thing on the side, you know? And then I, to me, the, the way to solve the problem that I saw growing up in my family was to have something meaningful that you did outside your work. It wasn't get a better job so that your work, so that your life is meaningful. You know, it was more like that didn't seem like an option. It was like, you're going to have a job that you hate and that's going to oppress you because you are stuck in the bottom of this system. What you need is something that gives your life meaning outside of it. And so for me, that was writing. So I never expected to be a writer, make money at writing, have a job that was related to literature that was inspiring to me. I thought I would work, you know, like in a cafe or something for my whole life and just after work, do my writing and that would give my life meaning. And I would have a higher quality of life than my parents for that. At what point did that really start to change for you? At what point point were you like, I'm a writer and also I need to get paid for my writing? It didn't happen to me for a very, very long time. Um, because the reality was I couldn't get paid for my writing, you know? Um, and when I see a lot of writers who are up and coming and who have that, that like writers need to get paid and, you know, I'm not going to work for free. Like I agree theoretically with that, but the reality for most writers, especially if you are a writer who is coming into your career through small presses and, you know, not, you didn't go to Iowa and get kind of like funneled into a, a high powered agent through your professor. And now you got a big book deal. Like that only happens to a few people, right? Or maybe it happens to lots of people. I don't know. It's like, I worked for free because that was all that was available to me. And I wanted to write and I wanted to put my writing out into the world. I wanted to be part of the conversation. I, you know, I, I'm not the kind of writer that would have written a book and put it in a drawer. I like, I need to know that there's a purpose to what I'm doing, that it's getting out there. It's reaching people. That's why when I first moved to San Francisco, I was doing spoken word because it was a very immediate way to have my work reach people. I would just go to a bar at night with my new poem and I'd read it and I'd get a response, you know, and it was a very vibrant, very engaged and engaging um, scene in San Francisco in the early nineties. So it, you know, I thought I would be a writer. I didn't know how to make that happen. I got to San Francisco. There was this very easy kind of populist democratic way to just put your writing out there. And, um, and I'm so thankful for it. As Michelle's book started getting more of an audience in the late nineties, she started making a living as a writer, but another big thing happened that changed her relationship to money. She started going to addiction counseling and got sober. Especially once I got sober, which happened, gosh, probably about like a solid decade after I started writing, right? Um, I realized that without the sort of like blurring and numbing effects of alcohol and the sort of like attendant denial that comes when you're an active alcoholic, it was actually really hard to be... um, so broke, you know, it was hard and it was heartbreaking and it was scary and I didn't know how to pull myself out of it. And I just felt for the first time, the the real feelings of sort of sorrow that come with, you know, being so broke and so kind of helpless in the face of your economic situation. And prior to that, I just had a lot of bravado around it, you know, and when that went away, I just, I was sort of, I guess, humbled by it. And I wanted to know a different way, you know, and I slowly sort of accepted that it was okay for me to want things, you know, which I, I always wanted things, but, um, I don't know when all I wanted was like a dress I could find on the street. It was okay, you know, and then that just stopped being enough, I guess, you know, and I wanted, I wanted more and that was really scary and a scary and, and really sad moment because I just didn't really know how to do it. And for the first time I, I really felt trapped in my life, like because of, 
the way that I romanticized being a writer. I romanticized being broke. I romanticized being an alcoholic. Like all of that worked for a while. And so I didn't care that I was making like literally like $7,000 a year, you know, Um, and just only having enough money for like a 40 ouncer and whatever I could find on the sale rack at a thrift store, you know, but I got older and I started seeing the full picture of the world and what's available. And I started questioning, like, why do I think that I can't have that? And um, I just remember like being at Trader Joe's and my, my bank card being denied. I didn't have enough money to pay for my groceries and, you know, being so humiliated by that and, and embarrassed and, and sad and upset. I wanted those groceries, you know, and just feeling like, I'm not in control of my life. Like I don't understand money. I really demonized money. And I, I sort of created this story about myself that money is something that I don't understand. I hate money. I'm not a money person. Don't put me in charge of the money, you know, and it was not true. Like anybody can be a money person. There's this really frustrating trend of equating having money with having power as if it's a feminist act to just be involved with gaining more money. The biggest example of this is Ivanka Trump, who this last month gave a keynote talk at the Women's Summit of the G20, talking about how essentially being rich is empowering. Some of the media coverage of the event asked, is Ivanka Trump the new face of feminism? I asked Michelle about this. Um, Well, I mean, having power, power doesn't equal feminism. You know, even women having power doesn't equal feminism. Like to me, feminism is a suite of values and ideals that work together. It's not just like, I, I work in a bank, so I'm a feminist, you know, I'm sure lots of feminists work at banks, but they're not feminists because they work at a bank, you know, and obviously there's lots of wealthy women who are feminists, but they're not feminists because they're wealthy, you know? Um, to me, I don't even know that my, the kind of awakening I had to my financial situation. I, I don't necessarily see that as like a feminist thing within my life. You know, to me, it was just about um, accepting reality on reality's terms, you know, and, and allowing myself to want more for myself and, and getting it. I mean, I think that it's easy to look at all the horrible things that money has done. And obviously like income inequality is out of control globally, Global capitalism is a menace to humans, to the earth, to animals. I mean, it's just horrible. Like there has to be another system than the one that we're all struggling with. I mean, it's so crazy when you think about it. It's like we've created this earth. Like we could have created it in any way. And this is what we've got. It's like so unimaginative and and mean-spirited. So that said, within that, I don't believe you have to be mean-spirited in order to you know, make money. Um, I can get paralyzed by looking at the systems that are so much larger than me that I have really limited power over. And I end up in a place of, um, where I'm suffering. And I just, at some point, I guess I just decided I didn't want to suffer. And so to some extent you do accept and participate in this shitty system. Right. So I don't think I'm a monster, but I do think that I'm a part of a system that is oppressing us all, including myself. And, you know, I, I'm not willing to live a life that's like off the grid, you know, where I'm just like growing my own food and, you know, not, not partaking. I, that's just not my path in this life. Like I would be really miserable. So at some point, I guess <laughs> you're I'm, like, you're, you're like, I'm a terrible farmer. Don't yeah, look I mean, farm. I just like, I don't, that's just like not what I'm here to do, you know, like it's just not. (laughs) And so at some point I just have to accept that like I am a product of my place and time and I'm a, you know, I support the systems that are killing me like we all do. And that is part to me of the like bizarre paradox of like our existence, like not to get so meta about it, but to me, they're really huge existential questions, you know? And, um, which I think is why, you know, I allowed, my answers to be what they were in the past and allowed myself to be sort of like victimized by stuff is because it's so, I do see the big picture of how horrible all of this is. And, and it's painful to be, allow yourself to become a part of it or it was for me, you know? Yeah. I think that's a really good point where being anti-capitalist doesn't mean wanting everyone to be really poor. It means wanting everyone to have enough 
to be stable and happy and be able to support for themselves and their families. Yeah, exactly. And that's like, that was a huge switch for me because there was a point when I was in my 20s where I did want everyone to be poor. I really did. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was more righteous, you know, and I don't believe that anymore. I don't believe anyone's righteousness is solely attached to how much money they have. Michelle T's most recent book is called Black Wave. It's a dreamlike dystopian meditation on sobriety and adulthood. Check it out. You're listening to Popaganda, the feminism and pop culture podcast. Today, we're talking about something that makes many of us deeply uncomfortable money. Money feelings. So many feelings. I want to talk about taking an idea, a creative idea, and making it into your work, making it into your job, your business, but in a way that's not exploitive of anybody, making a business without like selling out, <laughs> just to be cliche about it. Can you make your art into your livelihood without starting to hate it? To talk about this idea, I called up two of America's enterprising small business owners located in the heart of North Carolina. Uh, I'm Phoebe Judge, and I'm the host of Criminal. I'm Lauren Spohr, and I'm the co-creator and producer of Criminal. You know Phoebe and Lauren well. If you listen to lots of podcasts, they're the host and producer of Criminal, a show that explores crime in the United States from a really thoughtful and not sensational or black and white, good guys, bad guys kind of perspective. It's a philosophical show, and one that often makes me think in new ways. Phoebe and Lauren met while working on a more traditional radio show, The Story with Dick Gordon. When that show was canceled, Phoebe and Lauren spent a night on a porch, having a drink, and Lauren suggested they start up their own show. Phoebe thought it was impossible. But months later, they did. At the time, Lauren was making a living as a dog walker and an adjunct professor. Phoebe was working as a radio reporter. Now, they both work full-time on Criminal. They're on their 65th episode, and this month, they're on the West Coast doing live Criminal shows. I talked with them about what it took to quit their day jobs and how money shaped their outlook on launching their own show and business. Okay, let's start off by talking about your relationships to money growing up. Did you two grow up in houses with enough money, not enough money? What did you think about money as a kid? Well, this is Phoebe. I mean, I think, you know, I grew up in, one could only say, kind of a perfectly fine financial household. Um, there was enough money to do everything that we might want to do, but not so much money that we could do anything we wanted. Um, I think my parents were both, you know, re responsible with money. And I, I never wanted for anything that I needed at all. But I certainly wasn't able to go shopping every week um, or get, you know, just have a whim, get what I wanted. I mean, money was there, but both of my parents kind of worked. My father worked in public radio and my mother worked for the city of Chicago. And so we were perfectly comfortable. But, you know, the, we, I was aware of money and, and having money and not having money. And um, so that's that's how I grew up. Uh, Phoebe makes fun of me a lot and says that an important difference between our personalities and the way we grew up is that when I go to an ice cream place or a frozen yogurt place, I always want toppings. And right. she, you weren't allowed to have I toppings. I was never allowed to have toppings. And Lauren, like with no abandon, she's like, I'll have this and this and this one. <laughs> and that's the wildest thing to me. Like an ice cream cone was like the gigantic treat. And I think that I oftentimes... We're, we're doing something or buying something or thinking about something. And I say, oh, well, it's just like getting another topping, huh, Lauren? Um, so You call them mix-ins. Yeah, mix-ins. But I was only allowed to go to like one tasty freeze in Chicago. Like I never even knew that there were kind of boutique ice cream stores or, you know, with mix-ins and things. Um, so... Also, what was what kind of ice cream did your dad buy again? Like prunes or something? No, he would only buy one type of ice cream, Spumoni, which is... Um, <laughs> Every child's favorite. Chocolate and pistachio and cherry. And so uh, like we would just eat the chocolate, of course. I have never heard of Spumoni flavor. That sounds like the worst ice cream. Like even the name sounds like baloney. Yes, Spumoni. You wouldn't know about it. I mean, it's the worst ice cream flavor that's ever existed. 
So you guys are both in your 30s now, and not that 30 always marks a change, but I'm wondering, what's your relationship to money these days? How has your thinking changed since those days of terrible Spumoni ice cream? I mean, I have a lot more money now than I did when I was in my 20s. My first job, uh, I was a working, uh, my real job was I was working as a public radio reporter in Mississippi, and I got paid once a month. And when that paycheck came in, I would like pay my bills, and there would be so there wouldn't be much money left. There'd be like few, like $400 or something, $500 for the month. And I was working really, really hard and all the time. And the interesting thing is that like for that $500 for me to like buy food and gas and keep myself going and all stuff, I was never struggling. I never felt like I was wanting anything and it was always fine. And I'm in my 30s and I have more money than that. And... I don't feel any different than when I was, you know, when I had $500 at the end of the, for the month than I do when I have more than that. You know, I think my relationship to money has remained, like, I'm, I'm, I think, well, what's better to say is that Lauren and I constantly believe that criminal will go under and we will, we will be out of jobs. And so we're never comfortable in the fact that we can actually pay ourselves now. We're always ready at any moment. Um, she's going to go back to dog walking and I'm going to go back to landscaping. And we're fine with that. Like, we'll be perfectly fine. But we, we, we always think that might be around the corner. Lauren and Phoebe started talking about the idea for Criminal. That night, they found out that the radio show they worked on was going off the air. We were sitting later that night, probably, we were sitting on my back porch um, having a beer and smoking cigarettes because we both used to get to smoke back then. We don't anymore. That's also something that happens in your 30s. But um, So we were on the back porch and talking about what was next, and, and Lauren said, well, why don't we start the show now? And I thought, like, what? I no, we can't do that. What do you? How do? We're not allowed to just start a show. And then she said, you know, uh, there are lots of pu- people who listen to public radio who also watch Law and Order, even if they don't want to admit it. But there's no public radio show about crime. Let's do a show about crime. And I thought to myself when she said that, you know, I've said this a lot in interviews, like that's the smartest thing I've ever heard. We're never going to run out of stories. And so from that moment, we decided that we would do a crime show. And that was in uh, late August. And we spent the next six months thinking, I mean, we we tricked ourselves into believing that this was going to be the best thing ever. We took this so seriously, and I think we took it so seriously in thinking this is going to be important, and this is going to be good, and this is going to, because um, if we didn't, if we were w- more just haphazard, and we were more just like, oh, this is a hobby, I don't think we would have gotten it done, because it required us doing it at night, and on the weekends, and we both had full-time jobs, and so I think that we just pretended that this was going to be a a wonderful success and we started that that night uh, in August and the first episode came out at the end of January. How did you guys actually start making the show? Well, we we set up a little recording studio in my bedroom closet and we put blankets everywhere. We had some equipment um, and we, I think, I mean, we've worked in public radio for a long time. Um, so I think that the sort of technical skill was something that we didn't have to stress out about, right? Like we knew how to we knew how to edit. We knew how to record. You know, Phoebe had a lot of experience by that time hosting and doing interviews. So I think for us, the big challenge was thinking like, was the sort of like design of the show. Like, what is this show going to sound like? What is this show for? Um, what kinds of stories do we want to tell? What kinds of stories aren't we hearing? And like, what what do we think that we can make that no one else is already making? And I think we recorded three, three things that we thought were going to be the first episode and then we ended up saying this isn't good enough like this would not keep me from switching over to top 40 in the car like this story is still not good enough so that that was a lot of trial and error of just sort of saying like okay we don't have an editor we don't have a senior producer we don't have anyone who's going to tell us what to do so we can truly make the very best story we can possibly think of so phoebe i'm wondering when lauren said you two should make a show about crime you thought a that's genius but b we can't do that. What was behind that skepticism? What made you feel like it wasn't possible for you? 
Yeah, I think I had this idea of because I, we'd always worked in public radio, and and so that there's idea in, in public radio, you can't just get a public radio show. You know, it's very difficult. There's this finite amount of time on the clock, and it's, you're fighting for it, and so that's how. But then you know, she said, "Well, we'll we'll, we'll make a podcast," and I thought, "Well, who the hell's going to listen to that?" I mean, I didn't even know what a podcast was really, and so that that's where my skepticism came from. Is that I was thinking about this other way of doing things, where you have a boss and an editor, and you someone's giving you space to use a recording studio, and you have to prove that it's worthy and important. And, and we took this other path, which is to say we were going to hold ourselves to the highest standards possible, but we were just going to do it. We were just going to make it. I wonder how much of that feeling ties into gender. Uh, I think about the gender gap in podcasting and in media in general, and I think women are much more likely to ask themselves, oh, can I actually do this? I think maybe somebody else should do this instead. When you're perfectly qualified, do you think gender played a role in that hesitancy? Well, I mean, I think we're really proud of the fact that, you know, not only is it a female hosted show, but we're basically we're an all female staff. There's another producer, Nadia Wilson, who works with us. Um, I also am proud of the fact that not only do I see myself as a host or co-creator of a podcast, but also Lauren and I are business owners. You know, we we own a business, Criminal Productions. Um, And there has never been one moment where I've thought to myself, oh, we can't or we shouldn't because, you know, we're women or I'm I'm a woman. N- not for a second, you know. Um, and I think, I, do you agree with that, Lauren? I mean, I've never. Yeah, of course I do. But I also think like, if you, I think that's another way in which doing it ourselves yeah. has, we've like bypassed that. We weren't going to ask for permission. I do think a lot of women in public radio struggle to sort of persuade people in their institution that their voice, that they don't sound like a little girl, that they don't sound like a valley girl, or Mm. or having to sort of like make a case for the way that their voice sounds. I think we're really lucky that we just like took another path and didn't care. So tell me about the money side of this. You guys started making this in your closet. Were you worried about money at the time? What did you think about fundraising? We weren't getting paid for our time. Um, but I never, I don't actually, I don't ever think that we expected to get paid for our time. We just, we were happy to not be losing too much money in terms of getting people into studios. But we called in a lot of favors and had people do tape syncs for us. But we really, you know, I think at the, we didn't make a penny. I guess we never paid ourselves. We paid ourselves. We did making criminal for a whole year, and that December we paid ourselves back for the money that we had all put out of our pockets. Um, and I think then it was only about a thousand dollars a piece that we. I think it was less. Yeah, it was maybe less than that. Um, and and that felt like like a crazy thing that we could actually pay ourselves back. And then it took another, oh, it took another few months to even start seeing any revenue. Um, and I remember thinking when we got that first thousand dollar check from. An, a sponsor that we read, you know, I think our first ad ever was Audible. And we got this check. And I just thought, this is the craziest thing. This worked. Lauren, oh my gosh, this actually worked. We, Someone is paying us money to make this thing and no one's telling us what to do. And um, it was a very big deal to start seeing that this show was making any type of revenue because we knew we were going to do it no matter what. But I don't think we expected we would profit from it at all. How do you feel like that mindset shaped the show? Like, how does it shape the way the show sounds and feels to not have money and profit as the goal? We don't approach these stories in terms of what we think will please the maximum number of people. Like, we don't think like, oh, what's a story that we should do to grow our audience so we get more money or something? Like, we're not, It's it still really is about doing the most interesting things that we come across, the things that we are curious about. Um you know, versus sort of coming into it thinking like, okay, let's build a business. This is the this is the model for revenue in this field. How do we sort of like maximize our audience, maximize our revenue? Like what kind of content do we need to produce in order to maximize revenue? That was never part of the thinking at the beginning. And I think we've, we really, like Phoebe said, we really hold ourselves to the standard of like, let's not waste people's time. You know, like if we don't find this story completely fascinating, we're not going to do it. That was Phoebe Judge and Lauren Spohr. Thanks so much to them for talking with me honestly about their show, Criminal. 
You can find the show wherever you listen to podcasts and also at thisiscriminal.com. There are still a few tickets left as of me recording this episode to their live tapings in San Francisco and Los Angeles on May 11th and 12th as part of the Radiotopia Live Tour. Look up tickets at radiotopia.fm slash live. That's our show for today. Never forget, I am a money magnet. (laughs) Money comes to me. Money is sexually attracted to me. Money wants to be me. I love money. I am money. (laughs) I can't even say that with a straight face. (laughs) Huge thanks this week to our stellar guests, Rowan Boucher, Michelle T., Ashley C. Ford, Phoebe Judge, and Lawrence Bohr. The music on today's show includes the song I Hate the Capitalist System by the great Barbara Dane, I Love You Money by Lowell, and a remix of 9 to 5 by DJ Le Butch on SoundCloud. Plus music from Blue Dot Sessions. Check out their minimalist sounds at sessions.blue. The show is produced for Bitch Media by Alex Ward at Sounds Like Pictures. Our jingle is by Mux and Owen Worker. Every episode of Propaganda is transcribed by Cheryl Green at Storyminders. We're proud to make Propaganda available to people who are deaf and hard of hearing. You can find full transcripts of every show at bitchmedia.org under the Podcasts tab. If you have thoughts or feelings or feedback on the show, please feel encouraged to send me an email, sarah, with an H, at bword.org. I read every email and I'm always excited to hear your thoughts, whether they're good or bad, or both. Propaganda is produced by Bitch Media. You can help make Propaganda possible. Become a podcast pollinator. Pollinators receive a special mug, a subscription to Bitch Magazine, and other great benefits. Become a pollinator today at bitchmedia.org slash pollinators. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.